1: This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from City's Week. It's your club and this is your show.
2: So back to business at Anfield as once again it proves to be City's kryptonite with the team unable to build on their one win there in nearly 20 years. But there are definitely questions raised from the game that we can get into on this week's Blue Moon podcast. Was Pep Guardiola right to tinker with the setup for this occasion or would the team have been better attempting to play in a more familiar way? We'll put that along with questions about the goals, the one that was allowed and the one that wasn't, and all of the fallout from the game to this week's panel shortly. It's also time for City to get back in the saddle. It's Brighton at the Etihad on Saturday in the Premier League. League, and then there's a champions league group to win avoid defeat against Borussia Dortmund on Tuesday and Pep Guardiola will be sure of finishing the table in top spot all of that to come so let's meet our guests for today's show I'm David Mooney I'm joined by the man behind statcity.co.uk Adam Carter hello and the BBC's football correspondent John Murray hello John good to have you back on um it's uh, it's been a while How have you been
3: yes there's uh there's a lot of water passed under the bridge hasn't there since uh, since we last spoke but I think City are in a stronger place now, aren't they? Than yeah. they were when uh, w- when we last spoke, which is saying
2: something. Yeah, all going well. Uh, Adam, uh, it's been a, again been a while since so you've been. I think maybe earlier in the season, uh, first one of the season, second one of the season, something like that. So it's uh, how you doing?
4: Yeah, second show, but I'm still coming down from the fire pit that was the Anfield game. So hopefully we'll uh, dissect that, and you can be pro- provide some uh, cathartic before uh, me.
2: Yeah, um, right. Well, uh, to start with this week, uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, regular listeners will know that my views on various aspects of football kind of seep into these podcasts from uh, from time to time. Um, and as much as I do like the sound of my own voice, I do try not to dominate discussions with my own views. But this week, I think it's a little bit different. I want to talk about the fallout from the game at Anfield. It's been a week where things have, well, they've basically got too much. Uh, we'll talk about the football and Pep Guardiola's tactical setup and the goal that wasn't and the goal that was shortly. But first, I want to address what happened off the pitch Uh, you already know what this is about because reports of unsavory chants about Hillsborough and Heisel and reports of coin throwing at the manager and reports of a coach being damaged again they've all been dominant in the last few days I do want to stress at this point though that this isn't a blame game I don't care who started what I do care though that it doesn't carry on football should be a place that isn't sanitized where we can all where we all kind of stay silent and clap politely when a goal scored nobody wants that But equally, I want it to be a place where we can all feel safe, where I can feel safe, and where you can go and enjoy your team, or not, as Sunday was for, for City fans, without being put at risk physically or verbally. City against Liverpool has provided some of the best games in Premier League history. With the size of the game comes a responsibility, and that falls on everyone. It falls on the clubs and their press departments. It falls on the managers, on players, on fans, on people who work in sports media, on podcasters as well. The narrative can get pretty toxic, and it has this last week. I don't think you can be surprised that if you create a tinderbox, you get sparks. It's not long ago that there was an opinion piece that this rivalry wasn't a real one because there was no needle and now we're in a situation where everyone is disgusted with each other because it's all gone too far. You'll read plenty of opinion pieces in the run-up to in the aftermath of these games designed to rile you up. You'll see it on TV, you'll hear it on the radio, don't rise to it. Instead engage with what is the responsible coverage of which I very much hope that the Blue Moon podcast and the people that we have on it, that's what they do. So if you're one of the fans that sang about Hillsborough or Heisel, please, please, please have a think about what you're doing. There are some survivors and relatives of those who died in that crowd, who should be able to go to games without being reminded of it and who and put through it all again. Remember the 2008 Manchester Derby at Old Trafford. There was a genuine fear there that City fans would ruin that 50th anniversary memorial of the Munich Air disaster. And in the end, we were all thanked for being impeccable. And that was a, that was a pride thing. It was a badge of honour afterwards. In 2014, when these two teams were battling for a title in a previous era, City went to Anfield on the Hillsborough anniversary weekend. Fans held up a banner in the away end with a, a City badge that read Justice for the 96. How far away from all of that are we this weekend? Now, I also know it's unlikely that they'll be listening to us, but if you are one of those fans who threw coins at Guardiola or attacked the City bus as it left Anfield again, please have a think about what you're doing. No rivalry is worth hurting somebody without with, with actions like that. Everything needs calming down, and we can all play a part in that happening. Football, as I say, shouldn't be sanitised, or we'll lose the excitement and the drama, but equally we can't live in a world where just anything goes. It's time for us all to be better and it all starts with looking at ourselves. We can't control what other people do, but we can control what we do and we can play our own part in de-escalating things. Um, so with all of that said, John, I'm very much aware that I'm preaching to the converted with most of what I'm saying. And I'm, I'm also aware that when you're in the in, in Anfield at, at the weekend, you're focusing on, on what's happening on the pitch because you've got a job to do. But what, like, what was your experience of it all? What did you make of what happened at Anfield?
3: Well, I think that with this there's an awful lot that's been all thrown in the pot together and as you've said um to use that phrase there is an awful lot to unpack from this game but there are a lot of different aspects to it but when you're talking about the basic point of decent behavior you know i think that's what you are focusing on first and foremost and primarily there and you know something that always does baffle me and you know i can't quite understand it really because you know in this country We've got an awful lot in common, haven't we? And when you boil it down to certain areas of this country, if you're talking about the northwest of England, then people from and who live in and are um, you know, have sympathies and loyalties to the northwest of England have an awful lot in um common, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And yet and yet football can create these divisions. But I think what people have got to remember, you know, putting aside all the arguments about what, where the football clubs are, what it is that Jurgen Klopp said or didn't say, what he's accused of, what he's not. Did, the, you know, when you talk about basic human behavior, that that is that is at the top of the pile. And, you know, are you behaving in, in the right way? I think that's what any individual has to ask themselves when these moments arise. And, you know, it's a very simple question. And I think we know that a lot of what happened at Anfield on Sunday was was people behaving badly and crossing the line into unacceptable behaviour.
2: Yeah, Adam, for for you as a as a fan, in all of this, does it feel too toxic right now? Does it feel like like it, it just need it, everything does need to be just kind of calmed down?
4: Yeah, like John alluded to there, it's crossed the line. I think this is a game that I now no longer look forward to just because of the toxicity of it, just because of the tinderbox that it becomes, just because of the pressure that's almost this this, if we we really need to go back to the basics and boil down that we watch football for enjoyment. The tribalism, because it is more than just watching an entertainment product, it, is, it does um, seep into your day-to-day life as well, but we need to not lose sight of what we're there to do. We're there to watch 22 men entertain us for the hour and a half to allow us to escape from our day-to-day lives. And I, I find myself not looking forward to the Liverpool games because the pressure is so much big And not even for what happens on the pitch. It's, it's more that, that the things that uh, uh, envelop it around it, the, the build-up on with fans on Twitter, the articles that are uh, generated from fanzines, from the songs that are sang in the stands. And I'm all for atmosphere and we can cre- create some great atmospheres without, without having to cross that line. And I find myself now just dreading the Liverpool games because of what it's become. And uh, it was absolutely abhorrent, the the songs that were being sang and the, the coins being thrown and whatnot. Uh, but uh, my question is, were those... Were they- those songs sang before the kind of it spilled over on the pitch as well, or is is that kind of a fuel to the fire? I just, cause we need to not lose sight of when something bad goes on the pitch, we can't just turn into absolute animals off the pitch just because we've perceived to be hard done by. And the yeah. same, I, I don't think people were throwing coins at Pep before he was kind of gestating to the crowd with his uh, kind of orchestrating his, his conductor arms. But, you know, I, I just think we can't lose sight of it just because of something that goes against us on the pitch. Uh, it's just abhorrent.
3: We were always going to get to this point, David, I think, with the rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester City. And it wasn't such a long time ago that I remember covering these matches and people w- would say, and I would get asked the question, well, it's not really the rivalry like Manchester United and Arsenal had all those years ago. It's not really like the rivalry that, that Liverpool and Manchester United have. It's not really like the rivalry that Manchester United and Chelsea had. But the simple fact is if you've got two clubs that are are as powerful as they are over a period of time then they end up playing each other a lot more than they would do normally more than just two league games a season there's lots more to it therefore that familiarity does breed contempt no excuse to say as i've been suggested that well jürgen klopp whipped it up with what he said in his pre-match press conference i mean do me a favor You know, he's giving his opinion on questions that he has asked, and if you can't respect someone else's opinion and behave properly when it comes to it, you know there is, as I say, there is a line that people shouldn't cross, and and that is the the first thing that you have to remember.
2: Yeah, well, uh, as Adam, as you alluded to, uh, things did change on the uh, on the disallowed goal. The atmosphere did ramp up at that point. So let's get into the incidents from the game, um, and let's start with with that turning point because um, I, I think City were they were kind of controlling things up to that point. Um, here's what Pep Guardiola said about the uh, about the disallowed goal afterwards.
3: Well, this is Anfield? This is Anfield? The referee. I spoke with my assistant coach, Rodo, and Jurgen said, OK, I'm not going to make faults until it will be clear, clear. And all that game was play on, and play on, and play on, and play on. Except the goal, because we scored after it's not play on. The referee can decide, I'm going to whistle all the actions, all the actions, all the actions. But he decided don't do it, and after he did it. We didn't lose the game for that because nobody knows what would happen. But it was a moment that we have an our momentum and we control the score a goal, and uh, cannot do it. And after we lost, by a mistake.
1: This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast.
2: Now, John, you can you can see his point about soft fouls not being penalised until the goal, but ultimately there is a very clear foul in there, isn't there? There
3: is a very clear foul, and you know that all the club, whatever was said, you know, I know what has been talked about was said by Anthony Taylor before the match at the start of the season. This was made very, very clear to us that the referees were going to. Uh, have a higher bar and as soon as you do that then there's you know there's another gray area there because the bar is higher but where is the bar and if you if you don't allow the play to flow then the officials are going to be criticized for being too pernickety and breaking up the play i think i generally as football fans i think people would rather see the game flow in the way that it did and um you know the, the simple fact of the matter is it was, in my opinion, it was a foul. It was a foul that was picked up by VR. It was the right decision to disallow the goal.
2: Yeah, Adam, the there is the the kind of knock on effect where I mean, it's unfortunate because, as John says, I I, I agree. It's you, you can't you, you can't ignore that when it's been referred. Um, but equally, like it does have the effect of it, it does swing the momentum, and it's not like it's not City's fault. It's not Liverpool's fault. It's yeah. it's something you have to deal with, though, isn't it?
4: Yeah, so absolutely, it was a foul first and foremost. And let me know if I contradict myself here. Um, the, I'm I'm a big fan of the bar being high. I think Anthony Taylor had a good game up until that point in that he was letting everything go. So I'm I'm happy if you let everything go. You continue to let everything go, and I prefer the game as a spectacle because of that. Now, um, once you let you because that was definitely a foul, Harland on Fabinho, I think it was, but. There was other fouls during the game that didn't get penalised because they didn't result in a goal. So you're only ever going to look back at these events if it leads to a goal. If it leads to a corner or a throw-in, it never gets reviewed. So in those instances, the best you can hope for is that you get a corner rather than go and score a goal and you get penalised for those for those fouls. The ridiculous foul that Bernardo did on Salah that he let go was, if, was almost worse than the Haaland one. Yet yeah, he's letting that go because it didn't result in anything uh, that was, you know, could be penalised thereafter. So it's just, and like you say, it's not the team's fault that the resulting action is then whether it's looked at or not. And um, that's just the only gripe for me. But I'm I'm in. I'm not here to say that it wasn't a foul. Yeah. I'm yeah. just saying that. And the second point on the bar being that high. If the referee on the pitch is having a bar that that, that that's high, the VAR needs to have the same side uh, the same bar bar at the same height as well. Because as soon as he deems it as a foul that we're not going to let go, then it becomes two different decision makers making two different decisions.
2: Yeah. But it, it's it, the 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 an issue maybe here, John. That uh, is the VAR protocol because ultimately the protocol is that Anthony Taylor. Describes what he's seen to the, the the VAR official, and the VAR official will go, "Well, yes, that matches what I do. Don't review it. What I see, don't review it. Uh, no, that doesn't quite match what I what I see. Come and have a look at it." And ultimately, the only way that that doesn't get referred is if Anthony Taylor says, "Yes, I saw Harlan pull Fabinho's shirt," sure, which it, so he clearly didn't. At that point, then it has to be reviewed, and you, you you get the overturn, and that's kind of where you get the inconsistency with those other incidents that Adam's talking about, I guess. <laughs>
3: Well, I find it um, so interesting as a broadcaster that, you know, we do occasionally get to hear these things and you get to hear the conversation. And certainly if if I cover a game for Match of the Day, for example, I can actually listen to what's being said while I'm doing the commentary. So you've got a very, very good idea about what is going on. And I, and I do genuinely feel that we will get to a point somewhere down the line where this is released, uh, you know, maybe at the time one day, but certainly in the aftermath um, and I think it is genuinely full. And, and I spotted this when I was watching Match of the Day when I got home on, on Sunday night in that um, uh, Guy Mowbray, who was commentating um, for Match of the Day, made the point that, first of all, VAR were going to look at the foul, the Fabinho-Harland foul, and then they would have actually looked at, uh, at Harland's challenge on Al as well. And, and I'm not sure that that would have survived VAR either. So it's that communication thing again, but with the with the referees, with VAR, we're in um, we're in a position now where we're kind of in no man's land between the current regime and the new regime, which will come in during the course of this season, and we have to hope that when Howard Webb's regime takes over, that we do see a very quick and clear improvement in what's happening on the field and also I think the communication off the field but it's still a long path that we're on here don't don't be under any illusions
2: yeah Adam just finally on the on the disallowed goal um how much of it how much of that turned the game in in Liverpool's favor did was it City not responding to having that goal disallowed that ultimately won Liverpool the game
4: yeah, the the age-old thing that I say about disallowed goals is, is it's almost as if the other team have scored a goal because they've had the you know deflation of thinking they've conceded and then the elation of actually the back in the game and they get to cheer they get to cheer us not scoring which is a, a new phenomenon in the VAR age and that galvanised them a bit um and then we kind of felt hard done by it looked as if i mean you'd still expect 11 professional players to be able to get their head back in the game and switch on but that wasn't the case i think it went a bit it went a bit scrappier because up to that point we were almost we were almost containing them i didn't really feel under too much pressure as a city fan that i usually would at anfield i think we were well in the game and then we just kind of lost our composure it felt like maybe it was me feeling hard done by and aggrieved and then that kind of just you know blinded my way of viewing the game but certainly we looked um, a little bit scrappy there
5: after
3: such a fine line though it was such a fine line i mean that game could easily have gone the other way and and again it was another illustration of despite you know liverpool's in and out form this season that that when it came to the crunch there we did see the, the the liverpool that we've seen um when they've been at their best in recent seasons and it demonstrated how little there is between them
4: LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: You can listen to the show ad-free by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash podcast.
2: Let's touch on the goal that was allowed. Uh, with 15 minutes to go, Allison collected a Kevin De Bruyne a free kick, and within moments, the ball was at Mo Salah's feet and then in City's net. Um, John Guardiola called it a mistake there, um, but that, I think there's several mistakes, isn't there? Isn't there in there? De Bruyne could put a better ball in. He then doesn't track the run, and then uh, basically Cancelo gambles against Salah and, and loses. And at that point, you know you've, you've already had a warning shot across the bows from Salah. You can't you can't survive two of those, can you?
3: It's a big gamble as well, isn't it? By João Cancelo, if you if you if you do what he did there, you've got to make it. And actually, having been at Anfield since for the West Ham game, um, Salah very nearly did the same thing in that match as well. You know, he is a master of doing that, being able to turn and roll and 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 beat what is effectively the last man high up the field. So it it you know that well that was the crucial moment.
2: Yeah, Adam. Um... Just on a technical point, should Cancelo be left one v one against Salah at the back? Especially after like <laughs> Diaz, Diaz slipped what twenty minutes earlier and let Salah in. It's like 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 you've had a, you've had a warning here, boys. He maybe, of, yeah. maybe, maybe you should cover <laughs> this a bit more.
4: Yeah, there was definitely the warning shot that we should have acted on. Um, I think um, Walker's injury has led to a bit of our, the, the last line of defence looking different. Um, if Walker's fit, I know it's coulda, woulda, shoulda, but he'd be there and you'd back him for pace and he'd really give us, you know, us would give us a bit more security going forward because we know if, if there is a quick turnover, he's likely to win a foot race. But the, I don't know how quickly we could have reacted or should have reacted to Cancelo getting done about, like you say, five, 10, 15 minutes before that, and then it happened again, a carbon copy. So I'm not a big fan of Cancelo being our last man in defence. I think it's it, it, he's a great defender. Well, he's, he's better going forward than defending, but he's still a great player and he should have read it a bit better. But in that atmosphere against Salah, when he's looking to turn you, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't back many defenders to come out on top. So I think it was just a, the omission of walk via his injury rather than a poor tactical choice on the day. I don't know yeah. how quickly you can re- react to that.
2: Yeah, well, let's uh, let's touch on the uh, tactical choices as well, because uh, <laughs> City seemed a lot more conservative for this game than uh, previously. Um, there was a change of shape, and it, it, it seemed to be a bit more in a bid to control Liverpool. Adam, you said that you were quite happy with um, how City had controlled the game. Um, what about Guardiola's approach, though? Because did it in a, in a time when Liverpool were feeling a little bit nervous about the game and were feeling a little bit nervous about themselves, did it show them too much respect?
4: Absolutely. So we know Pep is petrified of Anfield and the Liverpool aura. We've seen it in these Amazon documentaries where before we even play Liverpool, I think it's the Everton game, he's talking about how we're going to control the Anfield, uh, you know, the, the game Anfield and things like that. So we know Pep's petrified. We know it's his kryptonite. And the form that Liverpool were in, uh, we, sh- we should have almost gone for the jugular. Uh, J- John mentions there that once once Liverpool do have to step up, they do show that they've still got that quality. So they're by no means these meek minnows that we would have torn apart. But we were in the ascendancy, and they were somewhat questioning where they were at in the season. I was happy with the lineup at the beginning, but I didn't realise that it would mean that De Bruyne was wide right, and that is not where I want KDB. You want him in the centre. Uh, I know why he did it because he wanted Bernard- Bernardo in the middle channels, like doing all his running. Uh, which he is effect, so effective against Liverpool at doing, but I thought we, our lineup was okay because we had opportunity to change it during the game, but that didn't happen. And any time you put De Bruyne a wide right for me, you lose his e- efficiency in, in the pit, final thirds of the pitch.
2: Yeah, but on the flip side, John, as, as you said earlier on, if that if that ninety minutes ends in a draw or it ends in a City win, I don't think people come away from it saying that it was an undeserved result. So it was it was a tight game decided by by the narrowest of narrow margins
3: still a strange one, though, I, I felt, but it's not somewhere that we've not been before, is it, with, with Pep Guardiola, <laughs> when when, when for, for a match of some standing, there is there are surprises in the lineup or the formation or whatever it happens to be. And yes, you know, the Anfield thing, and I, and I know the, the Liverpool people, you'll have heard it as well. Um, you know, there's so much talk, isn't there, that when City went and won at Anfield 4-1, uh, season before last, you know when Liverpool were in that slump they had that season. You know it, it is always mentioned from the Liverpool side that that was an Anfield which didn't have a crowd. It was behind closed doors, and similarly as well that slump that season when they lost the six consecutive home league games. It, it's always there's always that caveat. Yes, that happened during the um, the behind closed doors days and and very often actually they will refer back to the last time that liverpool were beaten when there was a crowd at anfield which was which was quite some time ago now so um so yeah it's in there that you know that is that that has to be considered to be a factor and and coupled with how guardiola was post match with the using that that phrase this is anfield
2: yeah, it, uh, it certainly plays on his mind. Uh, now, before we move on, we had a question this week from Steve O'Brien on the emails concerning what Jurgen Klopp had said in his pre-match press conference about competing with City. That sentiment has also been part of the tensions this week between the two clubs. So I sat down with One Football's Dan Burke and City fan Harry Stopes to examine everything that's been said.
6: I think it is true that City can outspend anyone if they want to. Certainly, probably anyone in the Premier League, maybe only, only PSG can sort of compete with them uh, globally, but... the the sort of counterpoint to that question is, well, how many transfers do City actually get wrong? You know, if you look at just the the Guardiola era, which seems to be the, the line in the sand that's being drawn at the moment, you think about... Bender and Mendy's been a big flop that hasn't properly been replaced. You know, people talk about the fullbacks an awful lot and they lump them all in together and they say, oh, they signed Walker, they signed Mendy, they signed Danilo, they signed Cancelo. And it's like, well, Cancelo came in and Danilo went out. So that was a, you know, a, a bit of a, a bit of a net spend job there, wasn't it? And aside from that, there aren't too many big money transfers that City have got wrong. And there is a science to that. You know, they've invested a lot in the scouting network as well. Um, they're the kind of numbers that don't get put on the... The graphics on Twitter, when people are talking about spend, you know, that, that kind of spend that goes on behind the scenes and all clubs are doing that kind of thing. Um, And City have also walked away from a fair amount of transfers because the numbers got out of hand and they, they couldn't make it work. Like ask yourself, why have they done that? If they can, you know, if they have the unlimited spending, if they have deep, the deepest pockets in the world, why do they uh, sometimes walk away from transfers? And the reason is financial fair play. Which has been enforced, you know, when City have, have fallen foul of that, you know, we went, we went to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and th- and that was all sorted out. You you would think, but people still have their theories about that and their conspiracy theories. And fair enough, like maybe we would have conspiracy theories if it involved another club. But at the end of the day, that that cast verdict is. Uh, it's pretty set in stone, so there is kind of no complaints that can be can be had about that. I don't think anymore. So I think you know. Obviously, we know that City have a, a lot of money and they've spent a lot of money, but they are bound by the same regulations as everybody else.
2: Yeah, Harry. I, I mean that point on um, bad transfers. That like other clubs mm. have spent similar amounts to City in recent years, but they have spent it badly. That that has that that has some merit in this, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, I mean the other thing I was just going to add as well, not to be like spreadsheet about it, but. Um... When you when you actually think about it from an accounting point of view, the the money that a club spends on a transfer is actually averaged out over the period of time that the player signs a contract for, which is let's say for the sake of argument five years. So if you spend an additional ten million, that's two million per year. So the um, fees that City are spending on someone like Kyle Walker, which was deemed at the time to be astronomical, I remember Jonathan Wilson writing an article about it in the Guardian which um, included a reference to the Dutch tulip craze, which he'd obviously just read about and thought he was the only person that ever discovered this (laughs) very well-known event in financial history. Um, But anyway, yeah, that was deemed like a ridiculous sum, but it's, I mean, he's been around for five years-ish, I think, Um, and it's been an outstanding signing and hasn't needed to be replaced, um, apart from obviously occasionally when he's been injured. So as Dan said, yeah, I mean, City have signed... um, Generally speaking, they've been very wise in the the transfer market. I mean, in general on City's spending, um, I mean, it is is very near the top of the Premier League. Uh, If it's not the highest, I'd have to double check the figures. I mean, City do spend uh, among the highest on transfers and they spend among the highest on wages. In fact, the highest on wages. Um, And that's one of the reasons why they're the best team in the league. I mean, there, there is a correlation. City do spend a lot of money and there's a correlation in terms of the results on the pitch. The other thing as well
6: is that the the net spend is improving recently, right? The last couple of years, the net spend has been really good, particularly this summer. City sold loads of players and ended up with a negative or positive net spend. I'm not sure how you, how you put it, but...
2: Profit, profit. They profit. profit, there we yeah. go.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because City are now at that point in the project, for want of a better word, you know it's been a long time coming, but where the outlay doesn't have to be so significant all the time, where they can still go big for the occasional player here. But we're generating much more saleable assets from the academy than we ever have before. Um, you know the CFG has been a really good money spinner, like like it or not, it's it's been a great idea and a bit of a revolutionary idea in football. The kind of stuff that uh, other clubs have been. Um, lauded for in the past for their the way that they've conducted their business. So, you know, whether you like it or not, I think you have to say that the, the CFG has been a great thing for City in terms of the finances that it's brought in. So that's why we're seeing this this kind of levelling out in terms of the net spend now. And I don't think um, it's going to be such a huge outlay for City in future.
2: Yeah, um, I want to come to next spend uh, shortly, uh, but first let's just play this. This is uh, this discussion has, has come about because of what Jurgen Klopp said uh, to the media ahead of Sunday's game. Um, so let's hear directly from the horse's mouth what he
7: was saying. Nobody can compete with City in that. You have the best team in the world, and you put in the best striker on the market. No, no matter what it costs, no matter what it costs, you just do it. I know City. They will not like it. Nobody will like it. You ask a question, but you know the answer. But what does Liverpool? Put in? We cannot act like them. It's not possible. There are three clubs in world football who can do what they want financially. It's I don't. It's illegal and everything fine. But they can do what they want. Put in and they will say, yeah. But we have to, But it's exactly the fact. We have to look at. We need here. We need that. And we need that. And then we have to look here and make it younger. And here um, a prospect. And here a talent. That's what you have to do. And and, and and you compete with them. It's not not a problem at all for me. It's like it is, but it's, you, you don't ask me that question because you always open this discussion and in the end it's me telling you. But you all know it. You should know. It's not possible to deal with that. And it will be like this. I heard now the Newcastle, whatever is there, said there's no ceiling for this club. Yeah, right. He you he's right. <laughs> he's absolutely right. There's no ceiling for Newcastle. Congratulations. Some other gloves have ceilings.
2: So, Harry, what, what do you make of what he says?
0: I mean, I think he's deliberately misinterpreted the remark about ceiling. Just as a side note, I think the guy, was clearly, so the guy from Newcastle was clearly saying there's no limit to our ambition. Yeah. Um, but and that's a separate point. I mean, it's a moot point, really. Um, the important question is, well, what does he mean by compete? Because they can compete on the pitch. They just did on Sunday. Um, and uh, they were within a point of winning the league last season. Um, and you know, one one good game or one bad game away from winning the Champions League as well. Um, and over the last five years, they've they've tended to to run City very close. I mean, it looks if you like, it's sort of it looks like it's very skewed towards City because we've won four out of the last five um, titles. But they've, with the exception of um, was it, uh, I have to remember now, twenty twenty one. It was all very close, apart from the one that Liverpool won, which was very not close in their favour. So um, they can compete on the pitch, certainly. I mean, I appreciate the com- the conversation is a bit more subtle and complicated than that, but on that simple level of the pitch, which is what football is ultimately all about, uh, what he's saying simply isn't true.
6: I mean, the exception that I would take mostly with Klopp's comment is that I'm not sure that Liverpool's ceiling is actually lower than City's. And if it is, I think that's through choice. I think they probably do have the capacity to spend more money if their owner's wanting to, to invest more money, but they don't seem to want to do that. They do often just spend the money that they earn, and that's you know their own issue, really. That's not City's fault. And I do wonder if maybe Klopp was trying to send a bit of a message to FF, SF, FSG with that as well, while also having a bit of a dig at City of kind of saying, look, look, if you want me to properly compete with this club, then you're going to have to put some more money in. But you know, I think you have to say that Liverpool, they have done very, very well, uh, especially while Klopp has been there on a on a tighter budget than City. I don't think it's a low budget. I don't think that's that's fair to say because they've, they've spent well, a lot more than a lot of other clubs.
2: I was going to say, there'll be plenty of other clubs who look up at Liverpool from the league table yeah. and go, what are you on about? We can't Absolutely, compete with you. Yeah.
6: yeah, and it's very much a first world problem, isn't it? And, I think, it, I think it comes down to good scouting and good coaching at Liverpool. And, you know, you have to say fair play to them from that for, for what they've, that they've achieved during the time that Klopp has been there. But then you look at the players that they've actually brought in, the players available to them compared to the players available to City. And there isn't much between the two squads, you know, as they are very keen to point out they have, you know, a lot of world-class, brilliant players. And Klopp himself has even pointed that out in the past few months that they've got the best goalkeeper in the world, the best defence in the world and all this kind of thing. And... Arguably, they have a deeper squad than City. I think they've probably got more senior players than City have. That was certainly the case last season. They've had a few bargains along the way that they've picked up, like Andy Robertson. They've had some academy players come through, like uh, like Alexander Arnold. But most of the signings in that squad are sort of thirty to eighty million pound players. Like it's it's good, but it's hardly a fairy tale achieved on a shoestring budget. And that is kind of what Liverpool are very uh, conveniently sort of positioned themselves and, and how they would like us to to see them. I think, but it's not really accurate.
2: I think my, my other issue with with this as well, Harry, comes in again from the net spend argument. With um, that, there is one transfer that that does skew a lot of this discussion, and it's that like Liverpool sold Coutinho for a lot of money. City haven't done that really until this summer.
0: No, it's true. I mean, I think I think uh, to slightly. I mean, I broadly share Dan's opinion on, on most of what he just said. I would slightly push back a little bit in that. I think that. Um, Liverpool have been running on fumes a little bit in terms of their squad uh, maybe in the last couple of years I think that they're approaching a quite significant they need a quite significant overhaul uh Salah's 29 30 something like that uh Mane's obviously recently gone there are valuable squad players like Milner who um you know to be fair had a very good game on Sunday um, who are you know he's approaching the grand old age of being the same age as I am um <laughs> And, uh, you know, will need to be replaced. So, and and the other thing to say is that over the last five or the five years to 2021, which I think is the last accounts that were available, this is based on figures from um, Swiss Ramble, the guy who does uh, sort of football finance. If you combine um, amortisation, which is basically the the amount that clubs spend on transfers averaged out over a contract. If you combine amortisation and wages, City are spending about 18% more than Liverpool. So there is... There is more resources behind City. Eighteen percent is a is a decent wedge. Um, so Liverpool are overperforming in a way compared to let's say United and Chelsea who are who are underperforming. Um, so I think he's got a little bit of a point, uh, Klopp. I mean, but as Dan said, I think he his gripe is with FSG or should be because yeah. um i think that the way that they choose to run the club is somewhat similar to the glazers actually mm. it's not as bad in terms of the amount of money that they take out but i think the model is quite similar
1: get your ears around our bonus episodes every monday patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast
2: I mean at this point i I would like to talk a little bit about the ownership as well because if the problem is uh, is when people view city it's the source of the money and we can talk about you know different sources of money uh, until the cows come home uh, but ultimately, if, if it's a rich owner, a sugar daddy, a benefactor. Does that cause inconsistencies with uh, kind of how United or Liverpool or Chelsea initially became successful years and years and years ago? Because nobody's really doubting that their organic growth, as they all like to call it, came from sustained success in in various different periods. But that success was often brought about initially by a rich benefactor or, or by clubs spending beyond their means take united for instance you know late 80s they spent a lot of money to get themselves in a position to start winning the title quite regularly through the 90s at a point where the title then became really really profitable to win so isn't a scenario with clubs like city like psg like newcastle just the kind of the next logical step in that sequence harry
0: yeah it is i mean i think that um uh So, firstly, I mean, clubs like United were obviously the greatest benefactors, but there's also uh, Arsenal, Liverpool, to a somewhat lesser degree. You know, the clubs that happen to be near the top of the pyramid and have, you know, big names and history and so on, quote-unquote history, uh, at the time that huge amounts of money started coming into football, were in a sort of lucky position that for the first time, you could make massive, massive sums and therefore spend massive, massive sums in a way that wasn't possible previously. And it's, to a certain extent, uh, a kind of a fortune combined with, um, obviously, uh, United had a great manager at the time in the nineties and so on, whose name I forget. <laughs> um,
2: we don't we don't say it round here. It's okay.
0: Uh, no, no, no. It's uh, for Bolton. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think City's City's model has basically been to um, to just sort of artificially accelerate that process of putting money in and getting money out just over a very short period of time. Um, but that kind of happened, yeah, as you say, organically for those other clubs. Um, so the other thing that I was going to say is that I think David Kahn, who's I know a lot of City fans don't like, and I'm not going to talk about what he said about City in the past, but he has written interesting stuff about finance in football more generally. And um, he takes it back to the early '80s. I think it's 1981 or thereabouts when Spurs became the first club to become a PLC, a, pub, a publicly listed company. And um, at that time, the FA could have basically prevented um, Spurs from uh, from doing that because they had they were the, you know if you like the regulator of football, and they could have said no PLCs can't play in a football league. Um, but they didn't do that. They sort of were asleep at the wheel. The, the regulator, if you want to call the Football League and the, the Football Association regulators at the game, they just never did anything. You know, they, and so, as you say, um, where we are now and where we may be in the future with you know, the dreams of, of Todd Bowley and all that is kind of a, just the latest step.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, the other point about all this, Dan, I'm I'm interested in is that it's at this point when you have this discussion with, with opposition fans, the conversation often turns to sports washing. And if that's the issue, is that a completely different discussion? It's not about how, how much money City has spent, but it's about who owns the club, isn't it?
6: Yeah, I think it is a completely different discussion, not to sort of put it to one side and say we're not talking about that, like, you know, pull the wool over people's eyes or anything like that. I just think it is a different discussion. I think, you know, It is definitely something that requires examination. I've never been comfortable with the with the association with Abu Dhabi. Um, You know, I I resent the fact that we are asked to, as fans, to answer for you know human rights abuses that go on thousands of miles away. And and I, I I'm at the point now where I completely accept that there are some fans who just don't want to engage with that at all and just want to kind of enjoy the football. And I think that is a legitimate position that people can just ignore it if they want to and they don't have to you know, give up support the club or, or things like that. You can just, if, if, if you don't want to engage with it, then fine. I, I've also thought that for a while that maybe the sports washing angle has been a bit overplayed and is perhaps not as, as fundamental as people would like to have us believe. You know, it, it, there is a world where City's owners, uh, whatever you think of them, are probably just rich people who are running a business to turn a profit as it's their big portfolio of businesses in the same way that they they do. And I think the sports-washing conversation has become just completely toxified now. The word is used so often and bandied around so often that it's essentially lost all, all meaning. And, you know, I know that the... Um, the response to what happened at Anfield at the weekend from City, apparently they've they've sort of been briefing behind the scenes that there, there may be a bit of xenophobia at play there. And I don't think that's that's very fair, really. But I do think there is um there is something going on when it comes to the way people separate so-called good money from so-called bad money. To me, it's all just a different flavour of capitalism, really. But this there is this, you know, whenever someone says state funded or state-backed, it's almost a bit of a dog whistle at this point and I think that requires a bit more examination as well as, as how we sort of view that part of the world and money that comes from that part of the world.
2: Yeah. Is it, is it fair to suggest that City are the problem, Harry, rather than part of a wider systemic problem when it comes to spending? I mean, almost in the sense that City are a symptom of the problem rather than the problem itself.
0: City are definitely, in my view, it although it pains me to say it as a City fan, City are a symptom of a wider problem. You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to admit that, but it is the case in terms of the way that that money has um, played a role in football, and the way that one, you know, your experience as a fan and the amount of respect and priority that's given to fans has eroded over a long period of time. Um. So yeah, you know, we're, we're, um, the first part of that question is true. City are a symptom of a problem. But, again, the, the problem is wider. As I mentioned earlier, it's got a very long history. And the people who are responsible for regulating the game, both in the UK or both in England and, uh, you know, at the European level and at the world level, um, I mean, if you look at UEFA and FIFA, they're not organisations that are opposed to corruption. I'm <laughs> sure we can say that, you know, without having to legal that part out of the conversation. Um and so there isn't necessarily the appetite to really um, get to the bottom of it. And, and I mean, the Cass uh, case—the case that was heard at Cass, and then the verdict at Cass—is um, a sort of a. I don't fully understand um, exactly what that means. That the various, you know, the, the allegations were time barred, or the evidence was time barred. I feel like it's a bit murkier than some city fans would would imagine but but it is the apparatus that exists to regulate sport and sport across the world in many sports not just football is awash with money and it isn't always very well regulated and it is the that is the um field to use a sporting metaphor that city are playing on
2: yeah um just finally as well Dan uh, because I, I think back to me and you have talked a lot on the podcast about growing up and, and our experience of City growing mm. up Um I do think City fans can offer quite a unique perspective on having been on both sides of the this isn't competitive fans. Because I I quite clearly remember being a a teenager watching City in the noughties and seeing a lot of situations where I was like, well, City are never going to get beyond this point because they're never going to be able to have the tools to compete with United or Chelsea or Arsenal at the time. And then the tool is, oh, you have to be taken over by a rich owner. Now it's we can talk about the sustainability of of that sort of that sort of, um, that sort of model, um, but I just wonder if city fans should 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 be able to kind of relate to those criticisms a bit more than than maybe other fans can.
6: I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I certainly remember when Chelsea were taken over, thinking that was awful, and oh, isn't it wrong that they're buying titles and how horrible? And then you know when it happened to us, we we loved it, didn't we? But You know, I I think if there was, if if we had never been taken over, and someone like Everton had been taken over, I dare say we'd be complaining about the same things, and and would have a completely different perspective on things. Like my perspective at this point is just that this, to me, is I don't know how temporary it is, but everything is temporary, and I'm enjoying. Uh, the football on display from City, uh, not guilt-free because I don't enjoy anything guilt-free anymore. I don't think you can in this world. I think everything is, you know, there's something wrong with everything. There's something rotten at the core of everything, isn't there? And you just, Amen. as a as a, a good citizen, you just try and do your best to, um, to sort of toe a, a good moral path. And, you know... I won't have Liverpool or Man United fans or Chelsea fans or Arsenal fans browbeating us about this all the time, because I think this is football's problem and we all are complicit in this in some way. So um, it's a roundabout way of saying like, yeah, I do care I, I, and I do feel guilty about it, but I still enjoy the football. I can kind of compartmentalise those two things.
2: Yeah. I wonder, Harry, if this is the point though, because it, like it's always been a case of, of tough luck. This is the system and this is the system everyone else is happy with. And, like that—that's always been the case, and everyone's always been happy with it when they were winning. United fans were happy with it when they were winning, and Chelsea fans were happy with it when when they were winning. And only when they're not is when they when they start to want a change.
0: Yeah, and I mean the the fans that really have a, a sort of more, a stronger moral case to make are not the fans of the other big rich clubs. Uh, it's the fans of not just the lower down teams in the Premier League, but it's the fans of like. Um, Macclesfield, Berry, etc you know clubs that have just ceased to exist or have had to reform in a you know new form in low leagues because of the way that football is running because of the way that um, football clubs which are part of our national heritage and you know um, part of our history and part of what it means to be you know a Mancunian or a Boltonian or whatever the adjective is for Bury um, you know it, those those clubs have been allowed to disappear and um that is also a product of the sort of the sort of rotten way that football's run in terms of money and it's it is a much much bigger picture than who gets to win the premier League much as like i mean as dan said it is great to watch city and i do enjoy it and um i do compartmentalize to a certain extent my concerns about the role that money plays in the game but If we're serious about this discussion, then it has to be conducted in a way that's not partisan. And it's about the whole football, the whole game of football and the whole pyramid of football. Otherwise, um, the accusations of um, self-interestedness are very legitimate.
1: If you enjoy the show, please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts.
2: That was Dan Burke and Harry Stope's Time now to look ahead to uh, City's coming games with Brighton and Borussia Dortmund. Um, John, I've, I, I, I'm expecting you'll have seen a little bit more of Brighton than I have this season, but uh, they, they seem to be pretty handy this year.
3: Not seen them yet under De um, and they seem to have referred to, to type a little, um, you know, in terms of how they were when uh, Graham Potter was still finding his way. But I saw them early in the season, and they were outstanding, absolutely outstanding, and they are they' I think one of the classic examples that we have around at the moment in Brentford or another case in point where you know through through good good club management, good club husbandry, you might call it and and good football management, and also time, you get clubs that are in that middle rank, that middle um, section of the Premier League. Who are way below in terms of the financial resources and the and the playing resources of the teams above them, but because of because of those two things, how the club is run and how the team is run, that they are quite formidable opponents. And uh, and Brighton, um, even even with the change, I think still have a lot of those elements.
2: Yeah, Adam, I can't remember off the top of my head many easy games against Brighton and I'm kind of wondering if that's for the best. Having having come off the back of what happened at Anfield, City City want a game where the opposition are going to come and play, which Brighton will do, and they want a game that won't be easy.
4: Yeah, we've never had it too easy against Brighton. They're certainly not whipping boys, despite we've I think we scored four on a couple of occasions against them. But they've also done us at their ground as well so and that's that lives in recent memory so we won't take it easy and i think we do need a challenge i think the home crowd for us will help i think we'll we'll be there'll be an element of you know um a scorned animal or whatever the same would be around you know a w- wounded animal Wounded we'll, we'll, animal all we'll like, over scorned. Yeah. you can't have mouth can you i love them how about uh, yeah anyway uh the the wounded animal effect i think and we're we, we Very rarely, if we lose under Pep, lose again or play badly again. I always, and this will be famous last words, but the first thing I said to my friend when we, with the full time whistle went Anfield, I said, I feel sorry for Brighton on Saturday because Pep usually gets his team in order after a bad defeat or a, you know, a, 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 Big impact defeat, and we usually go on a run uh, uh, and then get our you know get our ducks in in a row and, and plow on from there. So I'm, I'm expecting that this weekend, but it's not going to be any easy. It's not that's not going to be a, a reflection on how bright and are. I think it's just a way that when Pep loses, he whips his boys, and the next week we the real city turn up.
3: By the way, just on that as well, I, f- I feel that um, I-, I feel that things are really going Arsenal's way at the moment, and you know they get if there's if there's a bit of look around, they're getting quite a bit of it. And I think one thing <laughs> was the fact that they have not had to play Manchester City this midweek because of the uh, the rescheduled Europa League game. I think this would have been the wrong time for Arsenal to have to play Manchester City, but they haven't had to play them. Yeah.
2: It's funny, funny enough, though. I'm I'm the I'm the opposite view. I'm very happy that that game was uh, was was pushed to later in the season. City could have a week ahead of this uh, ahead of this Brighton game just to to kind of mull well, there over is, what happened there, at Anfield. Yeah.
3: There is that, but I certainly I wouldn't want to be I wouldn't want to be playing Manchester City next match after Anfield. That that is uh, that is for sure. And one actually, just one other thing on Brighton as well is that um, I, I just noticed this week, the the team that they played against Nottingham Forest on Tuesday night, that was exactly the same team that started their first match of the season. So another thing with Brighton is that there is that continuity. I think by and large, whether it's Graham Potter or De they know what their best team is, and of course they don't have those European commitments, um, and therefore therefore, there is that settled nature to a team, which actually is quite a rarity these days at the top end of the Premier League.
1: This is the Blue Moon Podcast. But don't worry, it'll be over soon.
2: I also think, John, that uh, I've I've long had them down as the unluckiest team in the Premier League, with how they seem to. They're, they're like City in that they they seem to get the ball into all these dangerous areas, but then, they're, unlike City, they don't just don't seem to put it in the net.
3: But they've got some smashing players as well, and actually, they've sold some very good players. And even even with selling the players, you know, whether it's Basuma or uh, Kukareya, you know, they've still been able to just slot someone else there, whether it's Caicedo or Trossard, who I think is uh, is one mm-hmm. of the. I, I don't think it's fair to call him underrated because I think everyone now knows how good he is. <laughs> yeah, but he is straight very straight good in my player. fantasy team. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll be surprised if he doesn't pitch up, uh, you know, if he's not maybe the next big um, sale that, that Brighton make. And, and one other thing that really jumped out at me um, this week is that people might not have picked up on is the fact that for how well Danny Welbeck plays for Brighton, he's actually not scored for them yet this season.
2: There you have it, Adam. Uh, Ex-United yeah. player coming to the Etihad. Yeah, first
4: goal scorer. Yeah, I'll uh, put my money on it. Thanks, John.
2: Yeah. Uh, Adam, all of Brighton's games seem to be uh, really tight affairs. So, I mean, for City, how how do you calm the nerves in the stands? Because I, I, I do know from having been in the Etihad enough times when it's a tight game, you mm. know, we can get nervous in the stands, can't we?
4: Yeah, an early goal, please, and not a Danny Welbeck goal. That would really calm the nerves. Um, we just need to control the game from the off. I think Brighton are more than capable of imposing themselves on the game when they've got the ball. So we need to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, we need De Bruyne in the right position. We need... I think the, the the players will be up for it. I think we just need to turn up, play our game and it will be enough. Um, that's no not, not to discredit Brighton at all. I just think we need to stay on the ball early it be an early goal um, and then it should take care of itself. But the longer it goes on, we know what the Etihad can get like because we're, we're, we're natively uh, pessimistic, aren't we, as a fan base?
2: Yeah, God forbid it be goalless on 70 Minutes. With, uh, <laughs> yeah, who knows what would happen there. Um, on to Borussia Dortmund then, John, as well. Uh, City are already through the group, um, but it, it like. It, do you think it's important these days to still win the group the new seeding system of the champions league over the last few years seems to have leveled the playing field a little bit and i'm i'm not really sure there's there's a, there's as much of an advantage as there used to be by finishing top these days
3: no i've seen it work both ways um in terms of if you if you win your group you can really end up scuppered with the draw and, and similarly, you know, there can be doom and gloom well if not being able to win the group and they end up with one of the more favourable draws. You know, it's you're still going to have a pretty decent team to play in the last 16, but I think by and large, yes, you do want to win. You you, you are more likely to get a more favourable draw if you win the group.
2: Yeah. So with that in mind, Adam, how do you balance this week for, for Guardiola? Because uh, obviously, with, with already being through, you kind of want to be a bit more sure of the Premier League points, don't you?
4: Yeah, and uh, but Pep's always got this thing about rhythm and momentum and keep giving players minutes who need minutes in the league. He likes to play De, play De Bruyne a lot to keep him in the rhythm. So I don't think we'll see an absolute, you know, 11 changes. There's still the element and the prestige of winning the group. It's a statement thing. Um, and like we say, whoever doesn't win this group, uh, they're a second place team in, there's a second place team in Dortmund or city that all the winning uh, teams aren't going to want to face. So. The it's, it's the seeding system's a bit strange now that you're going to have two good teams. Regardless, you would think so. I don't think there's going to be the the element of oh we must win this game to win to win the win the group. Uh, that might affect Pep's thinking when we play Sevilla. Um, but I don't think it's going to be wholesale changes. But there'll certainly be a smattering of one one or two that um, that will come in. Uh, but he likes to keep the momentum. He likes to keep the rhythm in players' legs. So it won't be wholesale. That's for sure.
3: And I think when and I think when Manchester City do eventually win the Champions League, which they will, <laughs> what they want to do in the season they win it, I think, because it's quite a rare feat, is to win it without losing a match at all in the Champions League that season.
2: Ah, uh, that, that could be this year then. Um, so uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, set set the sights high. Um, I mean, the, the other the other side of this, Adam, we always talk about youth players and, and youth prospects coming through at City and, and opportunities. Um, the Champions League group stages, when when you are already through, I get that it's that it's uh, a, a difficult environment to to blood youngsters into. Um, but there are players who are on the fringes, who are not quite senior players, but not not any not youth players anymore. I'm thinking the likes of Cole Palmer, for instance. Um, is that the sort of name that you can see coming in for this game, or is it still a very much a case of that's the sort of name that would come off the bench?
4: Yeah, I still think they're coming off the bench type names. Um, I'd personally play uh, Cole Palmer from the off you know as soon as as soon as possible but it's not my job on the line if that goes wrong so pep is very much putting players on the uh on the pitch that are going to do the job for him first and foremost but me i've got the romance of seeing the city academy and seeing youngsters like phil foden coming through and you know representing our club at the top level and i want that more and more so i'm always biased when i'm asked questions about should we be playing youngsters more and more i think the dortmund game will have more of a reflection on what the Sevilla team looks like based on the result of Dortmund. And if we're through and we've topped the group or perceived to top the group thereafter, I think that will open the door for players like Rico Lewis, Cole Palmer, Wilson Esbrand to to maybe get a start. But I still think Pep loves the rhythm and the uh, momentum too much to really, you know, throw 11 new players at it.
2: Yeah, and uh, I mean, ultimately, John, the 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 game after this as well is it's it, it's a kind of ten days or so away yet, but it's still uh, a trip to Leicester the following Saturday lunchtime. Um, it, it, rhythm is important, I guess, for Guardiola in, in, in making sure that he's got you know players in the right frame of mind for each of these games.
3: Yeah, although that's never too much of a problem, is it for Manchester City? But <laughs> I think um, I don't think Palmer's started yet, has he this season? And obviously he had the injury problems last season. Um, and I think Foden has has not started the last three Champions League games, so you know that's. I think he's probably weighing up that as well. Um, you know, not that not that England is top of his list of priorities by by a long stretch, but obviously the, the fitness and the condition of of each individual player is. And while that World Cup is getting closer, mm-hmm. um, maybe maybe he will feel that he has to. Use more some of the players that will not be involved in the World Cup, i.e., some of the the younger players who he feels um, are good enough and able to to be in the starting lineup, i.e., Palmer.
2: Yeah, and Erling Haaland, who uh, who won't be going to Qatar. So <laughs> that's uh, that's, uh, that, that, that's a frightening prospect for all of City's opponents between now and, the, and mid-November. Um, right, so it's charity bet time. We've raised £205 so far on the charity bet this season. Uh, we each get a £10 correct score single on City's games from William Hill, and the winnings are going to the Man City Fans Food Bank support group. They're helping the Trussell Trust collect food and money to support Manchester Central Food Bank. If you're at the game on Saturday, then go and drop them a visit with a donation if you can. They'll be under the bridge by ASDA between 12:30 and 2:30 pm so let's kick off uh, with the brighton game uh, john what are you having for this one
3: i am going to go 3-0 to
2: manchester city for that one 3-0 is 13 to 2 and 65 pounds if you're right adam what are you
4: having uh, 3-1 city
2: 3-1 city is 10 to 1 and 100 pounds if you're right i'll go 4-1 city which is 14 to 1 and 140 uh, that brings us on to dortmund um adam what are you, uh, what are you saying for this one one all uh, one all seven to one and uh, seventy pounds. I've gone for a, a, a city to edge it to one. That's uh, eight to one and eighty pounds. John and I'm going for a classic Champions League
3: <laughs> style later group scoreline of two
2: two. <laughs> 2-2 two, two. if it comes in is 14-1 to one. it'll win City the group so, uh, so no need to feel bad about that and it's uh, £140 for the charity if you're right as well uh, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble prices can change please gamble responsibly and for more information take a look at begambleaware.org uh, now we're going to finish with a quick listener question this week uh, get in touch for next week uh, on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast you can email us through the website as well bluemoonpodcast.com um, Alan's got in touch on the emails to say I went into this season thinking that City were very light in the fullback area with only Cancelo, Walker, and Gomez as options, I was pretty happy with the summer signings, but I was worried that we'd swapped being short of a striker for being short of defenders, especially in the fullbacks. Ten games in, and sure there was a little wobble at Anfield, but I've completely changed my mind. I love the flexibility of a Kanji or Ake to fullback if it releases Cancelo to move forward, and we end up with a back three instead. Do you think that this is Guardiola's most complete City squad, even allowing for the quality going forward in the 100-point season with Sarnate, Sterling, I? side of Aguero. Um, Adam, you've experienced all of the uh, Guardiola era squads. Um, Is is this one the strongest?
4: Yeah, I think it's strongest in terms of age. I think it's strongest in terms of contract length. I think it's strongest in terms of positions filled as well. I always say um, the five centre-backs that we've got now um, you could play any two of them in a starting lineup, and I wouldn't bat an eyelid. Um, we're not playing at Anfield every week. So, a kanji or ake being in what you would perceive to be less natural positions out wide at either fullback position isn't going to be, going to be an issue nine times out of 10. So, the, the back line's really strong now. Um, Walker's injury. We've only really felt it because we played at Anfield away. Uh, any other game, we've, we've we've got through quite comfortably. Um, the contract length really pleases me with the the stuff that the club um, are doing off the pitch. That's been highlighted with the recent Club of the Year award. Um, so you know the, the off the pitch stuff in terms of supporting Guardiola with what he needs. We've gave we've given him the best striker in world football, arguably. Currently in Haaland, up top, um we've got um width options. The fact that we were able to get allow Jesus and Sterling to go because we've got Mares, Grealish, Foden, Bernardo who can fill those those points as well. We've got depth in the midfield barring injuries with Phillips, Gundogan, and Rodri. I realise I'm just really named. just now. naming we've the team Alvarez now. Yeah, Alvarez to support. <laughs> yeah, Alvarez to support. So what I'm getting at is Alvarez to support Haaland if he needs any rest. So certainly we cannot be complaining about <laughs> injuries or squad depth. I think. In recent years, it's been perceived that we've had this amazing squad depth. And while we absolutely can't complain this, this season, we really can't. I, I think I'm really happy with where it's at. And we'll have no excuses if weird things like VAR don't, don't disrupt us too much. It won't be anything else.
1: Yeah,
2: John, it's it's interesting that um, when you when you consider kind of where City are at this season, it does feel really unbalanced at the back. But then when you watch Ake or Akanji move to full back and City end up with a back three, they, they look really balanced, don't they?
3: which of course John Stones can do as yeah, well and yeah. has done. Um I think in terms of the the overall squad strength and depth it does still really strike me how many youngsters there are on the bench for City every time I see them. So I'd maybe say it, in fact it's possibly one or two people uh you know of a um you know of, of full proper experience you know proper standing yeah. short Se- of senior level what, yeah what yeah of what city have had in the past but i think harland trumps everything <laughs> um, and what, what my interest is actually at the moment is, you know, touch wood, nothing happens to Haaland because certainly as a, as a neutral observer, I want to see him play all season for Manchester City. If for whatever reason he can't play for Manchester City, how easy will it be for City to then drop back and refer to the, the type that we've seen over the course of the last couple of seasons? Maybe it won't be, maybe it'll be dead easy for them to do that, but we'll only find that out uh, if and when that would happen.
2: Yeah, John, I've I've also I've I've had conversations with uh, other neutrals um uh, kind of this season who I, I don't know if you agree with this but they they've they've kind of said they found City a little bit dull to watch in years gone by because they they had to be quite methodical about how they got the ball to the six-yard box to, to kind of create the tapping. And now with Haaland mm-hmm. there's a little bit of a of an element of chaos in there and it's it makes it a little bit more exciting if you're not a City fan to watch it. all.
3: I think I wouldn't agree with that about how they were, with the exception that, and I think what what people are referring to there are those games where City are, or two, three, four nil up and they're just trying to do the same thing and they're just pl- trying to play the way through. And the team that they're playing against has got no ambition because they're two, three, four nil down and, and don't want it to get any worse. So I think that, that perhaps is the reason for that particular argument. You know, how you can not admire and love watching a football team that has some of the talented players that City ha- have and have had in it and what they're capable of doing, um, you know, when, when they're on song, um, is, is you know does surprise me really but certainly Harlan now does add a, a. I mean I was I was exhilarated by watching Manchester City do what they did to Manchester United in the first half of the derby match that was that was just that was I was absolutely blown away by that by the way that they played and and how they took the game to opponents like Manchester United in, in the way that they did and uh, I simply just want to see more of that this season.
2: Yeah, uh, amen to that, eh, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, I'll sign just, up to that. Yeah, just on, just finally, Adam. Um, uh, we're talking about this possibly being Guardiola's strongest squad. Uh, so, two, two very, very quick questions. And i realise realised this is an incredibly unfair way to end the show. Uh, <laughs> but if you're Pep Guardiola in the last year of your contract with all this going on, you must, you must, you must be thinking about whether you want to put that signature down for a little bit longer.
4: I, with every passing week, I can't believe the signature's not on the paper. To be honest, <laughs> everything just seems geared towards it we've given you the best uh the best footballer on the planet in current form and you you're still no closer to signing it so it's got to be soon like every time i i turn on the news i'm expecting to see a, a guardiola contract extension but it's just not happening bizarrely
2: yeah and uh how 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 much do you think city can win this year bearing in mind um we we ultimately we talk about that hundred point season as one of the most extraordinary that we've ever seen if this squad yeah. is better how far can it go
4: yeah, oh, well, see, I'd have to uh, put my money where my mouth is there uh, with me saying it's the best squad and we should achieve everything. I think the Liverpool game was a kind of a bit of a down-to-earth moment in that I've been preaching this, this season that if we don't need to be perfect because we've got Haaland, we'll still win, and... Anfield was one of those games where we needed to be perfect to change it from what was looking like a 0-0 to a 1-0 in our favour. So, having said that, there's no excuse and no reason why we shouldn't go to the latter stages of every competition that we're in and a couple of trophies would be a a nice little return on the end of this season because it's going to be a weird one with the World Cup in the middle as well. I think a lot will depend on any uh, injuries that lead into that and come from that as well.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Right, Well, that brings us to an end for this week's Blue Moon podcast. Thank you very much to my guests, to John Murray. Thank you, David. And to Adam Carter. Cheers. There's a clip of this week's Patreon show coming up shortly. I'll be back again next week after the games with Brighton and Dortmund. See you then. That was
1: the Blue Moon podcast please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's.
5: I think my first ever game was Norwich at home in the FA Cup in about 2005 or six, and, and that was just a dead rubber. And no one was particularly bothered about it, to be honest with you. But you could sense there was something different with this one. And we're on this stage now, you know. We've we might not have come away with it this time, but look at the level of of entertainment we've got now. And you know, rather than just you know milling around in, in mid table for for most of the mid two thousands, we got somewhere now. And you know, we've got to this this level where we wanted to be.
2: You're not old enough to remember Main Road and and what mm. Main Road was like, but I wonder if if for a lot of fans, this is the game that they. They sensed that the city of Manchester Stadium became home for the first time. It, like there, there was an identity to the to the to the ground and to the stadium. Then mm. at, at, that that didn't exist in those earlier years at, at, at what became the Etihad.
5: Except that who's been a City fan since the seventies, I think he was quite cautious of of moving and and yeah. what leaving Main Road would would mean for City and, you know, just the, the atmosphere in the place. It was electric and and I think that that served as well in going forward and bringing a bit of excitement to, to the City of Manchester Stadium because i have just seen a couple of, of turbulent years of, um, of, of mediocrity, really.
1: You can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast and join us again next time for another episode.